Let me get started shortly. Minute and a bit left. So. All right, so uh, very started streaming live, so I'll just start schmoozing, but we won't start this year. So this is um, the final in this particular season that we're doing a uh, series in this particular series. Um, this will be the fifth class that we've done on the topic of uh, battles for the soul of Israel. I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. But um, is a lot of other things to uncover. So I'm hopefully going to be in the upcoming weeks just starting to prepare season two of the battles. Um, I think we have to talk about the Hitnat Kutz, the uh, pulling out of Gaza, the Oslo Accords in general, which we will touch on this evening, but um, a number of other issues as well. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff coming up ahead. Um, if you have any suggestions of particular areas of Israeli history that, uh, that fascinate you, you'd like to deal with, by all means, let me know. But um, anyway, without further ado, um, give myself another three just so I can be completely accurate, and it is eight o'clock. All right, good evening, everybody. On this incredibly chilly uh, Thursday evening, we are dealing with um, one of the darkest periods in Israel, modern Israeli history, being the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And what I've called it is crisis in religious Zionism. And the reason for that is because it has, and we really touched a little bit upon this in the last class in Gushe Monim, that religious Zionism sort of has unfolded of uh, especially over the last um, 25 years into different groups that are um, quite extreme to the right and more moderate to the right or, or sometimes even to the center center left and a lot of this comes around the oslo accords and the like but what i'd like to take us through this evening is the, the build up and lead up to yitzhak rabin's assassination and then the aftermath of uh, what took place as a result of the assassination. So I'm going to share screen this even before I do. Give me two secs. What I'm going to do is share in the chat with everybody the uh, link for the notes for this evening. So if you look in your chat, you will have it over there. If anyone wants to look at the sheet, I will share the screen with you right now. Okay. So we're going to deal with it. We're going to take it from a, um, somewhere slightly different, somewhere abreast, and that is the assassination of uh, Yitzhak Rabin, we're going to talk about Mayor Kahana. Now, Mayor Kahana is, uh, is assassinated before Yitzhak Rabin, a number of years before Yitzhak Rabin. But uh, Kahana is going to be a figure who even what we now, 30 years plus after his passing. No, sorry, uh, apologies, I should have put you sick. Okay, 30 years. Thirty years after Yitzhak Rabin's passing, there is um, still, till this very day, there's this um, his 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 influence is still very much felt. Now, um, I will admit uh, that in my formative years of yeshiva, I found Yitz, uh, I found that Malka Hanna's writings. He wrote a book called The Jewish Idea, which I found was incredibly compelling. He wrote a number of uh, very controversial books. One that, funny enough, has found its way into the Shul Library um, from somebody clean out called They Must Go. And uh, finally, when I was at university, I found one of his books called Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews, believe it or not, in the Waverly Library in, in Bona Junction. So it's uh, his, his stuff's out there. But we'll see where, where Maya Kahana's sort of approach is going to have influence. So. So who was Maekahana? So Maekahana is uh, was born in the in the late forties. He was raised in Brooklyn, and was uh, got smicha was a very uh, you got smicha mirror was a very from uh, very charismatic, but very dogmatic as well. And in in his time in America, what he started was something called the JDL, the Jewish Defense. So this is a time through um, the sixties uh, and seventies where anti-Semitism or people picking on Jews was quite rough, um, not only in the African-American community, but largely in the African-American community. And 
he basically created vigilante Jews where he would go out and protect other Jews and if necessary, um, go to arms and beat up people that were threatening Jews. And it was a, a very violent uh, mo movement whose intent was defense. It was the Jewish Defense League. It wasn't there to go out and attack people, but it was there to ensure the safety and security of the, of the Jewish community. So that was, you know, what he did in America. But he was, his rhetoric was always very harsh. He was always, in the Orthodox world, very anti-reform, very anti-secular Judaism. So the book I quoted earlier, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews, really talks about the idea that non-Orthodox Judaism has no future. And so he was very much on the, he was not an outreach rabbi by any stretch of the imagination. He was very dogmatic and very principled and, and you, you'll hear him shortly. We've got a few video clips of his. He was very angry. He makes Aliyah in the early 70s. And when he gets there, he really starts getting involved in, on, in politics. He will, at, at a point later in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, he will actually achieve um, a feat of getting one seat in the Knesset. He is an, it's, it's an interesting individual. He, he will talk about it that, uh, that, that when he would get up to speak, the entire Knesset would empty. No one would listen to him because he was considered a fascist. He was considered a racist and no one would listen to him. So you'd say you'll, you'll go shake hands with Arafat. You'll listen to all these anti-Israel Arabs, but you won't even listen to one of your So he, there was there's a certain element that uh, democracy, you know, we, we have tolerance for those on the far left, but very little tolerance for those on the right. But anyway, so what was his shtick with regards to politics? So it says he firstly says the Jewish state needs to be a Jewish state. And for it to be a Jewish state, we have to accept that democracy and Judaism don't work together. Now, a lot of these ideas you would have heard through other channels. I'm not familiar that anyone has said them as well or as loudly or as early as Maya Kahana. So in a nutshell, he says as follows. We have to appreciate that the Jewish land is Jewish land. You cannot be democratic and Jewish. The two just don't go together. If you want to be a complete democracy, it's going to be not Jewish. And if it's going to be Jewish, it can't be a democracy because Torah values are ones that cannot be... Uh, subjected to the to the desires and wills of the majority it's the end of that if the Torah says you got to do a certain thing you got to do a certain thing it doesn't matter what the majority of people want to do that's number one the other idea is, is that the dangers and this is the third point here the dangers of non-jewish citizens becoming the majority so one of the biggest problems and arguably one of the reasons Israel did not annex the West Bank and Gaza is because it created a huge demographic problem Currently, the state of Israel has roughly 7 million Jews and roughly 1 million, 1.5 million um, Arabs. So Israel is still very much in the, the majority as far as um, population goes. But in the West Bank and Gaza, if you were to annex those places, you would up. There's, a, there's about 1, 1.5 million uh, Arabs in the West Bank and another, I think, two million in Gaza. So now you've just added three and a half million to the already one and a half million. It means you've got five million Arabs in in into the seven million Jews. And as the growth and, and the population growth happens, all of a sudden you are not too far off to the fact that the the Arabs will be, if not the most significant minority, possibly get to majority. And if Israel wants to be a democracy, so that be always democracy. So at that point, Israel is going to have to do you want to be a Jewish state? Do you want to be a democracy? If we're going to be a democracy, we're going to vote ourselves out of existence, which is why the Palestinians consistently say, oh, why can't we just all be citizens of the country and let's have a purely democratic country? We'll have one country run by democracy. And Israel says, absolutely not. We won't, we're not prepared to do that. And not because once those are all the Arabs that are currently in what are considered to say the, the broader boundaries of Israel. But once you start bringing in refugees of all the Jews that are or the Palestinians that are currently in Syria and Lebanon and, and, and Jordan, then it's, 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 it's really overnight you're going to have a majority of Palestinians. And that's why Palestinians will always be saying, let's have one country and give everybody equal rights. Yeah, because why that one country equal rights, democratically Israel will cease to exist. And Mayor Kahana saw this from the outset. He says, we cannot have it. So, and this is where he gets controversial. He never, to the best of my knowledge, you never hear Mark Kahana saying anything about, about attacking Arabs, about killing Arabs, or even at this point, expelling Arabs. So what's his idea? He says, exchange the population. He says that uh, this is what we do. 750,000 Jews fled Arab land since 1948. And surely it's time for Jews worried about the huge growth of Arabs in Israel. Consider finishing the exchange of populations that began. 
So we took in, the state of Israel took in 750,000 Jews that were expelled from Arab lands. And we expelled a number of Palestinians from uh, from Israel. So I've got a good idea. Let's just finish it off. And what we'll do, we will give, we will offer visas to every Palestinian inside Israel. Go live wherever you want, just go. And that's the sort of the topic of his his book, They Must Go. So you you pick where you want to go. And we'll organize visas and we'll give you a $40,000, uh, so I don't know what, where the number 40000 but $40,000 in the 1980s money. So it's a significant amount of money. Just go. And and those who refuse to go, then they'll be expelled. But we cannot have that these enemies in it. Now, why? Because that's what the Torah says. This is our land. We don't have to compromise on it. So so th so this is where um so it says Quran's right that israel should never start a war for territory but if a war launched again israel biblical territory should be annexed so so he's very much this is Ma'akahana. yeah Ma'akahana, the symbol in the middle this uh this this yellow one was his his uh his uh, political party called Kach. you might have seen um you might have seen that symbol around you will often see, and you'll see in some of the videos that we're going to show shortly, you're going to see that uh, that uh, that flag being flying. So, so you, so when you see, let's say, when you see Palestinian demonstrations, or you see like marches at town hall, and you see Hamas flags in the background. So when you see Israel, where you'll see like a Likud rally, and Likud is not a, but you'll see this yellow flag in the background. Now, the the movement Kach doesn't come from the word Kach as in uh, take, which is with a kuf, but rather kach, kaf, chet, kaf, kaf, kach, and that is basically, if you look on this uh, symbol on the left here, so this is the etzel, etzel, this is Menachem Begin's uh, group, the, uh, the, and if you look, let me just get my little pencil here, so if you look over here, you see that little hand over there, so that hand becomes this hand, and over here, rak, kach, so the word kach in Hebrew means thus, only this way, only this way. And uh, because uh, Etzel was very much based on Zev Jabotinsky's philosophy of, uh, of revisionist Zionism, that Israel would have to be taken by force. And so Rakkach, we see with a gun in the hand, this is this is Hamas. Yeah. So this this flag, if it was, you know, had Arab writing, it would have Hamas. So some guy with a, a gun in his hand saying Rakkach only through the, the gun. So Meir just took the Kach. You know, and that became the name of the movement. So, albeit that Kach was outlawed, I think, in the early 90s, not long after Rabin, he eventually was assassinated in America after a, a public lecture by a Palestinian. Um, and his son was actually um, gunned down in the, in the Second Intifada. He used to live in, a, I think, in Tekoa, or no, Kwatapuach is, is a settlement that it was, you know, got a lot of his, a lot of his uh, adherents. But what you see often in Israel is this, and these are well, this, these are just stickers. But you see it painted all over the Israel, and you often when you see attacks on Arab houses, that you'll see spray painted Kahana Tzadak, which is Kahana was right. So Kahana, now we are 30 years after his assassination, and there are still people living by this philosophy. All right. So what I want to show you now is just a couple of videos that will have. Um, um, some of the Kahana kind of speaking, so you can hear the kind of charisma that he had, as well as the kind of rhetoric that he preached. This isn't Israel. It's Palestine. Arabs, Arabs, and more Arabs. What will happen in another 10 years? How many Arabs will be living here? In 1967, we had a golden opportunity. When we liberated the city, we could have removed them all. They expected us to slaughter them, but there was no need for physical harm. Just transfer. Out. We missed our chance. It was a serious mistake for all generations. Jerusalem. A Jewish city, the Jewish capital. But Jews are afraid to walk here today. In the evening, there are no Jews here. They're afraid. Jews are stoned and stabbed. 
But the Arabs are not afraid. Tell me, who are the conquerors and who are the conquered here? Will this city be Yerushalayim or Al-Quds? We have to decide now because time is running out. All right, so you see, you see a video like that. And I remember in Yeshiva, when you were living in the old city, you'd see Arabs walking through the Jewish quarter and they'd just be walking free. And we as Jews would walk, we wouldn't dare walk in the Muslim quarter. And, and that's what resonates it, like that Arabs can walk around Tel Aviv and, if, and, and they're fine and they can go to the parks in Tel Aviv and they can walk around shopping centers, they're fine. And if I were to go to Ramallah, I'd be lynched. So that's uh, video number one. Video number two, we're not going to put this is that he gave at the at the National Press Club in America because in 1985. I'm just going to show the first few minutes to understand the uh, the nature of uh, his rhetoric. Thank you, Mr. Hess, members of the uh, dais, members of the press club, and guests. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people in exile dreamed the dream. The Jew in Poland and the Jew in Yemen, the Jew in Germany and in Morocco dreamed the dream that they called Shivat Zion, the return to Zion. A people, a people, that had been promised the land by God to a man called Abraham, who was told, get thee from thy father's house and from thy father's land and go to the land that I shall show you. A people that lived in that land and created two states that had kings who reigned and prophets who prophesied were driven from that land by the Romans. And not one day passed in those 20 centuries in which the Jew did not pray three times a day May our eyes behold thy return to Zion. That is Zionism. It was not Theodor Herzl who created Zionism. It was Theodor Herzl's great-great-grandfather who stood by the rivers and you can fill in the name of the country, the rivers of tears of France or of Germany or of England and said, someday we will come home. Someday we will return home. We came home in 1948. We returned. We didn't come as settlers. We returned as the legal owners of a Jewish state of a Jewish state which includes Judea and Samaria. If we have no right to Hebron in Judea, then we certainly have no right to Tel Aviv. Abraham never walked on Dizengoff Street in Tel Aviv, but he surely lived and is buried in Hebron. And our claim to a Tel Aviv which was built in 1905 is only a valid one if we have a claim to Hebron. So for those who say that Israel needs Judea and Samaria for reasons of defense, that may be true, but that's not the reason. The reason why we should not give up one inch is an eminently ethical one. It belongs to us. All right. So... All right, so you see the kind of rhetoric that uh, Maya he's passionate and he's powerful. And you, you listen to that sort of argument and it, it, it's hard to refute from a, from a purely religious point of view. It makes perfect sense. This is our land. And so you don't want to give up an inch of it. So now, let's get, uh, where's my, let's just see, we'll get back to our, sorry, let me just get to our screen here. All right. So this is uh, Merkahana. Now, it comes some years back now. So now we're jumping ahead. Oslo, peace accords. So all of a sudden, you've got this idea. First, Gevditsa Karabin shaking hands with Yasser Arab. 
Yasser Arafat a no to the terrorist, an admitted terrorist who has Jewish blood on his hands. And Yitzhak Rabin agrees to start working with this terrorist to give up land for peace. And, and, and you know, people are struggling with this. How, how you do it? So Israel is going to be incredibly divided now between the, the Shalom Achshav, the people who are pushing for peace now, and the people who say there could not be a greater travesty. Now, the opposition is going to be twofold. They're going to be the pragmatists and they're going to be the idealists. The pragmatists are going to say, you cannot have make peace with Arafat. Why? Because it won't be peace. You cannot trust this person. You, you, you're going to give up land. You're going to give up, you're going to give, you're going to give arms. You're going to give guns. You're going to release terrorists from jail. And what are you going to get in return? You're going to get more terrorism. Every terrorist you release, you're just incentivizing terrorism. So it's not going to work. So that you're going to have the one uh, group of people. And those pragmatists are going to exist throughout. I was listening to a talk yesterday. It was, um, also, but do, do, uh, wasn't the topic of the talk, but the, one of the things was, do rabbis have um, insight into uh, like a prophetic power? So it was my, my Rosh Hashiva of Moshe Lichtenstein. So he says, it's obvious, if you were to go back into the 1980s and see when Israel was uh, negotiating with Egypt, for Sinai, when Nachim Begin and Anwar Sadat were negotiating with Egypt, so all the rabbis were saying, you can't do it. It's not going to work. You're going to make peace with them. It's going to last for a few weeks. And then Egypt's going to you know, throw it out the window and they're going to give it all up and they're going to attack us. Egypt was our worst enemy in the area. And here we are, what, nearly 40 years later, and the, the peace with Egypt, okay, it's not necessarily a warm peace. I'm not sure I'd go walk around the streets of Egypt, but there has not been any... Um, in, in, in any tensions, any violent exchanges with Egypt in 40 years, it's an unbelievable piece. So, so the, the pragmatists might be right, might be wrong, but that was the one. But the other were the idealists. And the idealists were the ones that say, you don't make peace, not because we don't believe peace can be achieved, is because how can you give up the gift that we have we've won through defensive or offensive battles, we have won the West Bank, we have won the land of Israel back, and now you're gonna hand it over how dare you give up land to Israel? Now, Makahana, I can see, is very much in that idealistic land. We're going to have others that are in the more of the pragmatic camp. But what happens is Yitzhak Rabin, now, anyone who, who's read up about the uh, the peace process is, uh, you know, um, Yitzhak Rabin was no dove in the world of uh, Israeli politics. Uh, he was very hawkish, especially in the early stage, where a lot of the the tragedies and travesties that that had that have been alleged against the state of Israel towards the early, you know, in the 1948, the expulsion of Palestinians, massacres of Palestinians, uh, and the like, a lot of that accusation falls at the feet of Yitzhak Rabin, either through his decisions of chief of staff in the in the in 1967, but his involvement in the Palmach and in the in the earlier years of the Haganah, Yitzhak Rabin, you know, we think of him often as this this peace-loving uh, individual, but he very was not. It was it was really a big change. And when you see him shake hands with Yasser Arafat, you, see, you get the sense that he needs to wash, he feels like he needs to wash his hands off, but he doesn't like Arafat. He doesn't trust Arafat. But he's, he's doing what he believes is in the best interest of the country. He's really uh, taken a whole uh, seat backwards now. So that is, um, so, so that's what Rabin's doing. But what starts happening is the opposition to Oslo, because when Oslo started, and the peace, you know, the first steps had been made, instead of peace, because the, 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 the Palestinians, don't forget, so we, we think of that Uyghur, but the Palestinians, that by making peace with the Israelis and recognizing the state of Israel, you're now giving up on our, our, our hope to, to destroy the state of Israel. How can you work with the enemy, the Zionist enemies? So the hatred on the Palestinians and the anti-Arafat, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for us to believe, but Arafat, in the eyes of many of the Palestinian community, was a sellout. He was an individual who gave up his, his idealism. He was such an idealist, and, and, and then he gave it up. He was a terrorist who became a politician, and now just for his own personal self-benefit, he's doing this, and he's selling out the Palestinian people. What happened to our passion? We, we were kicked out of our land, and now you're prepared to just give it, give it to the Israelis. You're prepared to forego, go to 67 borders. What, what about... Jaffa, what about Haifa? What about the, the, the Galil? You, you, Yasser Arafat, are giving up. So what happens in the aftermath of Oslo is rather than 
you know, everyone coming together on the Israeli side, you have this enormous animosity, albeit not violent animosity yet, but animosity towards the peace process. But within the Palestinian community, all of a sudden, terrorism attacks start happening more and more and more. And what peace brings with it is more and more murder. We're going to see a video shortly uh, that's going to highlight this. But what what starts coming onto the screens and in the in the protests is all of a sudden you start seeing these sort of uh, these um, posters coming. Yasser, you know, Yasser Arafat with his gun, Yitzhak Rabin dressed up Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin dressed up as a SS officer, Yitzhak Rabin here with the with the target on his uh, on his head saying Habboged, the traitor. Time and time again, another, this is a, an advert taken in the newspaper, Rabin, Min Adam Shal Yado Shal Arafat Lotinake, the blood that's on your hand from Arafat will never be washed away. So tons of the same washing, the, 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 the accusations against Yitzhak Rabin are incredible. So I'm going to show that the next video we're going to see is a bit longer. It's from Frontline. It's uh, eight minutes. So my apologies for the length, but I think it's very powerful. It just gives you a sense of what was happening on the ground at the time. As head of the conservative Likud party, Netanyahu himself became the face of the opposition to Oslo. Netanyahu saw a moment of betrayal and peril and an agreement that would never and could never work. There's a really ugly character to it. The level of vitriol, the anger, the scope of these demonstrations, the kind of incitement, the portrayal of Rabin, the dressing Rabin in Nazi uniforms or putting a kaffiyeh on him. Netanyahu found himself at the center of the anger. In most cases, he doesn't do anything about it. I think Netanyahu even in some ways benefits from this association with the rabble-rousers on the right. I think the country's political system was superheated. It was like a car riding on a highway that had no water left in the radiator. And you could look at the, you know, the temperature gauge and it's all the way in the, in, in, in hot. The intensity grew culminating in a massive protest. Tens of thousands crammed into the center of Jerusalem. He was genuinely outraged, but he knew how to channel that outrage. And that coincided with his uh, rise to power. In Netanyahu's conservative Likud party, there was concern about the growing tension in the crowds that night. There were moments when Netanyahu was advised that, you know, there are real nutcases in the national religious camp that we see that we need to calm down, even gesturally. Netanyahu never did that. He never did that to his enormous discredit. The crowd was with him as he attacked Arafat. And then the government of Yitzhak Rabin. All Likud leaders, especially Benjamin Netanyahu, they have used very strong language against Prime Minister Rabin. They didn't use any kind of condemnation against the violence that was starting to take place. Netanyahu would later say he never saw the ugliest moments that night. Throughout Israel, the anger boiled over.
was there, and um, a lot of other people my age were there. This was such a volatile um, atmosphere at, at the time, and the, and, and the writing was on the wall. Night after night, the crowds massed across the street from Prime Minister Rabin's apartment in Tel Aviv. I'm there one Shabbat evening. We're talking. It's just the two of us. And there's a demonstration outside. And I said to him at the time, I said, don't you worry about some of this? He goes, no. I mean, he was, it's not that he was, you know, it's not that he was completely dismissive of it, but he took it as kind of a given. He knew, in a sense, what was coming and simply accepted it. Rabin responded with his own rally. More than 100,000 supporters singing of peace. Rabin was leaving. That's him coming down the ramp. The man in the blue t-shirt approached. Three shots from behind. The Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, the architect of the Middle East peace process, has been assassinated. The assassin, a right-wing Israeli Jew, Yigal Amir. Truly shocking news from the Middle East tonight. Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin has been assassinated. The evening spent dreaming of peace turns into a national nightmare. Outside the hospital, the crowd began to chant, Bibi is a murderer. The sign says, Bibi, Rabin's blood is on your hands. An assassin has taken yet another world leader away from us. It was just after the biggest peace rally in Tel Aviv. Rabin's widow blamed Netanyahu for contributing to her husband's death. Rabin has also produced shock in the Palestinian community. And said so on worldwide television. Your husband pointed the finger at Mr. Netanyahu and said, you must stop this incitement. Yeah. To what extent do you blame Mr. Netanyahu and the Likud for what has happened? I do, I do blame them. In a rally in Kikar Zion in Jerusalem, that showed him in the uniform of a Nazi. So Mr. Bibi Netanyahu, now he can say from here to eternity that he didn't support it and didn't agree with it, but he was there and he didn't stop it. Netanyahu's close advisor at the time vehemently disagrees. The attempt to pin on him the murder of the prime minister is a cheap po uh, political propaganda trick that was taken by his political opponents, mostly from the left, in order to delegitimize Netanyahu as a political public and to delegitimize the positions of Likud uh, in the Israeli open political debate. As the nation mourned, Bibi Netanyahu faced the political consequences of Rabin's death. The American ambassador says they spoke about it the day before the funeral. I remember Netanyahu uh, saying to me, look, you know, look at this. He, he's, he's a hero now. But if he had not been assassinated, I would have beaten him in the elections. And then he would have gone into history as a failed politician. Uh, Netanyahu was thinking, well, politically, um, he's, he's, he was on the ropes before he was assassinated. All right, so it's, uh, it's incredibly chilling when you see that. Now, where we've got to focus on now is um, what is happening in the religious world. So let me get back to our um, screen. Here it is. 
Okay. So, so what's happening over here? In the aftermath of the death, you see, here's an article in New York Times, Zil Rabin's assassination linked to rabbis and the religious right. All of a sudden, the accusations start coming out of what are the rabbis doing? So he has an article from the Association Press, rabbis who call Rabin's death face ostracism from colleagues. There were many rabbis in the in the religious or in, in the religious Zionist world who very prominently would call out Yitzhak Rabin as a boged, a boged we saw on the sign there, a traitor, a rodef. Now this is a term you've probably heard a few times, rodef. A rodef is a halakhic statement, literally a pursuer. And the halakh is that if someone is pursuing you to kill you, you can kill them in self-defense. So Yitzhak Rabin, by making this, this deal with Arafat, he's a rodef. He is lead, he's going to lead to the death of every many Jews. Every terrorist he releases from an Israeli jail, and that terrorist goes on to kill other Jews. So you've got to stop it now. So he's a rodef, he's a Moser, he's handing over Jewish lives to, to the Palestinian terrorists. So this concept that's happening within the religious honest world is that the, the rhetoric of Boged and Moser and Rodef is something that is coming loud and clear. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise who were these characters. So if you were in our last class, we talked about Gush Emunim, about the settler movement, it's a lot of the same rabbis. Now, none of them, and it should be stated unequivocally, and I, I say this would be true with Yitzhak Rabin and uh, with uh, Netanyahu as well. No one suggested for a second that anyone should go kill Yitzhak Rabin. No one would say such a thing. And this is one of the problems in with rhetoric and polemics in the in, in the world of politics is that when we talk about stuff and we want to be incredibly emotional and passionate about it, often we'll use terms that are not literal, but it's just to drive home a point. So if someone's a rodef, what we mean is that they're traitor, their values are completely uh, against everything we believe in Judaism, and we are completely opposed to them. But the subtext in our language is, so we should vote against them, and we should be against them, and we should do everything I can to, to, to stop the peace process. But that everything stops at murder. No one would suggest that it goes as far as murder. But what, you, what happens is in the street, people start hearing Boged, you know, traitor, uh, Rodef, Allah of Rodef, and someone who's, who's, <clears throat> who's unsophisticated will say, well, the rabbis are telling me that he's, he's a traitor and he's a Rodef, so therefore we've got to kill him. We've got to kill him. We've got to stop it. I, I'd be very surprised if anyone could bring any um, real source that a rabbi had told, you know, thought that murdering Yitzhak Rabin was a good idea. We see assassinations throughout the Torah, it happens that there's one notable called Gedalia, Foster Gedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah, which commemorates the assassination of a, uh, of a, of a, of a political leader who was not a, uh, uh, was not a prophet in any way, but of a political leader. The idea of assassination, of killing our own, is something that is, is, is the most egregious of sins. But that being said, is that there's no question within the religious war art, the, the rhetoric was very much there. And the question then happens is the second part is once it was done, how much remorse was there in the in the in the camps of the religious right? And there, like you saw, if you recall, when Baruch Goldstein went and massacred all the Palestinians at the at the cave of the Machpelah in Hebron, where many rabbis eulogized him, talked about him, he's been a great tzaddik. Um, the same sort of thing is going to happen about Yigal Amir, that people are not going to accept um, him. He's going to be viewed in Worst case, you know, in one extreme is that he was a good man. He, I can't condone what he did, but he was a tzaddik. He was a good guy. Or is that uh, he was he was a he was a mishugana. He was a bit of a fruit loop, and he did something crazy. And like, now, who was Yigal Amir? So Yigal Amir was a, a a kid who was a law student at Barilan University. Barilan is a um, I'm not sure if it's that much anymore, but it, it is a religious university. So what is a religious university? It's a university that there's a component of Jewish studies associated with your secular degree. So the, sort of the two things go together. It's a bit like a yeshiva high school, or, you know, that one would send a kid. So there's Torah and the like. But, and he graduated from a yeshiva, Kerem Yavna, which is one of the most um, well-known uh, Zionistic yeshivot out there. So he was a guy who'd gone through seemingly 
good he was a good guy he was studying law he was he was a it was a good guy but people were in the in the religious world were trying to dissociate themselves from him in some way or another so last last time we I shared an a, a an article written between with a series of letters between Rav Lichtenstein Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Dov Lior regarding the eulogy of um, Baruch Goldstein so this is in, in November 30, 1995. So this is just you know less than a week after the assassination. And uh, this is an article that Rav Lichtenstein wrote. I've, I've, I've trimmed it, but I think it's incredibly powerful. Um, and, and just why for me, Rav, uh, Rav Lichtenstein was such an important figure in our life because of his ability to be able to take a very hard look in the mirror. So this is what he wrote. So this was a public lecture that became an article. There are many reasons to cry to mourn. First, we must not lose sight of the personal aspect, a family's loss, even when there's a national public aspect. The first and most immediate loss is suffered by those closest to the deceased. Nevertheless, for us, the public side is the most important. Here we've undoubtedly suffered a grievous loss. It is rare to find someone with such a level of leadership, the combination of military background and over 20 years of political statesmanship, and the ability to lead and inspire confidence to steer a course in turbulent and dangerous waters towards a shore whose safety itself is questionable. Which is, I mean, it's a very powerful that he looks at it. He doesn't say he's agreeing with the peace process. He's just saying it takes enormous amounts of courage to steer a course through turbulent and dangerous waters to a shore whose safety itself is unquestionable. I think that's a beautiful analogy. So the circumstances of his cold-blooded murder, though, are a source of great pain and distress for us. Last week, I visited Mori Varabi, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik. So when I called Rav Soloveitchik, that is Rav Yosef Dov, that was Rav Aaron Soloveitchik's older brother. So Rav Aaron Soloveitchik was a Rav in Chicago. He says, his fierce opposition to the peace process is well known. As soon as I walked in, he repeated over a badge of shame, a badge of shame. Meaning the assassination of Rabin is a badge of shame. He was against Rabin's, uh, the, the peace process, as was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but the assassination of Rabin was a badge of shame. For two days, he hadn't slept out of shame and humiliation. This shame that our state, our people should have fallen to such a level should be felt by everyone, religious, secular, right and left. To the extent that we feel any sense of unity within Am Yisrael, to the extent that we feel like a single body, then the entire body should feel shamed and pain no matter which limb is responsible for this tragedy. We should feel deep shame that this method of supposedly solving conflicts has become part of our culture. Now, this for me was the most powerful. But naturally, this shame should be felt by our camp, the national religious camp, more than any other. Here was a man who grew up in the best of our institutions. A day before the murder, he could have been cited as a shining example of success and achievement and a source of communal pride. Coming from a deprived background, he studied in the yeshiva high school, attended great yeshiva tezder, great uh, post-high school yeshiva, and was accepted to the most prestigious division of Barilan University. Today, we hide behind the phrases, a wild weed from the outskirts of society. But if a day before the murder, we would have said proudly, see what we have produced, we must say it now as well, see what we have produced. It is indefensible that one who's willing to take credit when the sun is shining should shrug with responsibility when it begins to rain. Let us face our responsibility. It's an incredible line. This idea that yes, Yigalamir, we made Yigalamir. And he goes, and let us not fool ourselves to the extent that we are his family. Protection is not only after the fact, but also before, not only cover up, but also nourishment and support. Can we honestly say that what the murderers did was despite his education in the same way that yeshiva graduates are no longer Shabbat observers? In that case, it is clear that the choice is despite the education is, is not here the choice, at least not despite, but because Meaning, did Yigal Admir do not what he did, did do what he did, not despite the fact that he went to Yeshiva, but because he went to Yeshiva, because he was listening to the droshes that are talking about the prohibition of Oslo, because he was hearing about the fact that Yitzchak Rabin was a, was a Boged and a Moser and a Rodef, because what he heard in the Yeshiva, because of what he heard in our camp, that's what caused him to do what he did. Collective guilt is not established in order to remove or excuse individual responsibility, family, society, upbringing, and the climate, do not remove personal guilt. Jewish tradition insists on a personal responsibility. But the Egler Rufa teaches us that there's another level, that beyond the individual guilt, 
there's also a level of collective guilt. He looks at Yitzhak Rabin's assassination and says, we, our camp, are responsible for that, us religious Zionists. So you've got within, um, just let me see what, how much more I brought here. Okay, there's a lot more than uh, that um, that you can take a look at. Um, you've seen the sheets, but you can take a look. But what, what he's, what's happening in the religious world now is, so in the lead up to Oslo, you have different groups of rabbis. You have rabbis that are saying peace, peace process is a fantastic thing and we should encourage it and embrace it. So there's some really, albeit a very small minority of the religious honest world, but there is a, is, a, is a small minority of people saying it. The majority of them are against the peace process because they don't, either because they don't think it'll work, you're giving up something for nothing, or because ideologically, how do you give up land? And, and so we see these protests. I don't know if you saw in the protest, the yellow flag of Kach. I saw you could see it there a few times in the process. So what's happening in the religious Zionist world is that we have to stop this at any, whatever we can do to stop it. But then someone takes matters into their own hands. And what happens is what do we as the religious world, so do we look at it and turn a blind eye and say, listen, I'm glad, it, it's terrible that he killed, that Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, but at least, at least it brought the end of Oslo. And to a large degree, it has brought the end of Oslo. If you think of up until, up until Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, the vast majority of governments were Labour governments. Since Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, with the short exception of, of a short term of Ehud, Ehud, um, Ehud Barak, it's been completely Likud. The government has gone more and more and more to the right. I mean, it's funny that where Bibi Netanyahu is now considered centrist. I mean, you see what he's over, how right-wing he is over there. But today, by, on the political spectrum, Netanyahu is in the center. So it's really everything that it derailed. The assassination of Yitzhak Rabin derailed the Oslo completely from our point of view. What it did to the Palestinian point of view is another, another question, but it completely derailed it. It was incredibly unpopular. So what uh, Martin Indach said at the end of the video was the fact that had elections been called, um, that, you know, uh, Rabin would have lost hands down. People were against Oslo. Even, even the, no matter how many people were protesting or were celebrating the peace process in Tel Aviv, the vast majority of the country was against it. But now that Yitzhak Rabin's been assassinated, so you've got within the religious Zionist camps people saying it's terrible that it happened, but at least it, you know, it was a good outcome in a sense that it derailed Oslo, and you know these things should happen. That's what, I don't know anyone who celebrated it in the religious Zionist camp. I, I, I'd be finding very hard to believe that, albeit that many were. And you, if you read some of the articles that I've put on the source sheet, there were many people who um, who did um, argue it out um, that uh, they, they put curses on Rabin and, and that he should die a, a, a spiritual death. And there were many things done. But then you have another group of rabbis and Rav Lichtenstein, Buddha Amital, and other others that come and say that really um, that this is not only is this a tragedy, you know, regardless of what you think about the peace process, this is a tragedy of of a Jew killing another Jew, and to take a step further is that we, we are responsible for it, and I think that is phenomenal. Uh, the, the idea of taking collective responsibility instead of pointing someone and saying it's your problem or you did it, he's very much and he again he did not study under Rav Lichtenstein at any point. He was not Rav Lichtenstein's student. He didn't study under Rav Lichtenstein, but um, Rav Lichtenstein took ownership of him because part of the religious camp. So this 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 was like, huge. And, and this battle continues. I remember when I was in Yeshiva for a Purim party, so Rav Lichtenstein was um, quite, uh, quite center-left. I wouldn't call him left-wing, but he was center-left. Rav Amital, who was the other Rosh Yeshiva in the Yeshiva, was... was Part of the Labour government, so he was definitely on the left. And at a Purim party, at one of so the yeshiva was in in one of, was in a settlement, is in a settlement. And one of the kids from the settlement, so the yeshiva and the settlement had nothing to do with one another. But one of the kids from the settlement got drunk and tried to physically assault Rav Lichtenstein because Rav Lichtenstein was pro peace, and he felt that that was a traitor. So he tried to attack the Rosh yeshiva at a Purim party because of that. So this, I so this still is very rough. I mean. At the moment, what's happening is it's it's phenomenal. If you look, so this this what this coalition government's got together. So you've got Daftali Bennett, who is much further to the right than Bibi Netanyahu, but has agreed um, to work with people on the far left 
of the political spectrum to to get the country back on its feet and get the country at least the civil um, services of the country back on its feet because they've been in, in in limbo for the last few years and what's happening in the religious world is interesting so many on the right so you've got you've got right-wing uh, politicians so you've got Smotrich and stuff on the far right who are in part of the religious Zionist camp who are calling him a turncoat a traitor and the like because He's pre prepared to work with those on the left, including uh, the Arab parties. And so there's this hatred and the venom. Netanyahu is coming up with rhetoric, which is not too dissimilar to that which we saw in the video now, which is not, again, I don't think anyone is calling for anyone to be killed, but but the Shabak, the internal ser uh, secret service in Israel, has put 24-hour guards on Naftali Bennett and a number of the other pol politicians because they, they're very aware of what could happen. And even the Haredi so the Haredi uh, leaders have come out against Bennett and said, take off your kippah, you're not religious, how can you, you, you work with all these anti-religious people? And so the rhetoric is happening again. So so time and time again, within the religious Zionist camp, you're going to have these different voices of those who are seeming, because they're much more pragmatic. So I, I come and Rebbe seems very much from a pragmatic camp, not a messianic idealistic camp. Very pragmatic. Is if we want to have peace, so what's the best way to have peace? So we can, the status quo is not working. So we're going to try something. It might not work, but we're going to try something. But the idealists say we, we don't have to try anything. We wait. We hold fast until Moshiach comes, and that was Meir Kahana's approach. So that, that philosophy of Meir Kahana is so rife within the religious Zionist world in the in the extreme on the right that you see if you ever go driving through the West Bank, you will see the Kach flags. You will see Meir Kahana, those symbols of Kahana Tzedak, that Kahana was right. And even though he hasn't been around for 30 years and, and his party is, is, is banned, nevertheless, his rhetoric is still very strong. And especially in American Jews and in the diaspora, you hear this kind of rhetoric a lot. It is very, very black and white. It is incredibly dogmatic and, uh, and can lead to incredibly hateful things. So that's, that is uh, my piece for this evening. I hope you found it interesting. Um, I will now open up. If anyone has any questions, you can now unmute yourself. By all means, I will also um, unpin myself if anyone would like to ask any questions. Okay, anyone? Please. Going. No? No questions? Clear? All right. All right, everybody. Well, thank you very much. I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed this evening. It was uh, great. I hope you enjoyed this course. It's been a fantastic course for me. I've enjoyed uh, presenting. I've enjoyed doing all the research. If any of the articles or videos, um, they are on that, uh, on the on the links. If you'd like to, uh, if you want some more info, let me know. I hope you all have a wonderful Shabbat and uh, we'll see you soon. All the best. Thanks, Rabbi. Pleasure. Thanks, man.